millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. Joe Biden held the first full press conference of his presidency on Thursday, and what we heard was a president determined not to let Republican obstruction get in the way of his agenda. The contrast with President Obama couldn't have been more stark, as Obama spent most of his first term contorting himself to try to strike deals with a party that was hell-bent on nothing but his destruction. Axios reported this week that Biden is loving the narrative that he's so far been a bolder president than Obama. People forget that as early as 2013, Team Obama was sending signals that it would support Hillary Clinton for president in 2016, whether Joe ran or not. Biden was routinely snickered at in meetings by aides who would roll their eyes at his stem-widening interruptions. Obama himself, when he was a senator on Biden's committee, would roll his eyes as Biden went on and on. Obama even gently discouraged Biden from running this time, worried he'd embarrass himself and undo the legacy he'd built. How sweet it must be for Biden not just to have won, but to be delivering in bigger ways than Obama did. With party leaders explicitly making the comparison to 2009 and blaming Obama's push for bipartisanship. We made a big mistake in 2009 and 10. Susan Collins was part of that mistake. We cut back on the uh, stimulus uh, dramatically and we stayed in recession for five years. And hey, if spite is what it takes for Biden to become a transformational president, I say let a thousand egos bloom. Here he is celebrating the passage of his COVID relief bill with zero Republican votes at Thursday's press conference. Many of you thought there was no possibility of my getting the the plan I got passed, passed, without any Republican votes. Pretty big deal. Got passed. Growing the economy. People's lives are changing. The older Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, would have seen the partisan nature of that bill as a mark against it. President Biden taking pride in it is an enormous development. And here he is being as clear as Biden can be that he's not going to let Republicans in the Senate block him from enacting his agenda. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. I want to get them done consistent with what we promised the American people. And in order to do that, in a 50-50 Senate, we've got to get to the place where I get 50 votes so that the vice president of the United States can break the tie, or I get 51 votes without her. To get to that place, Biden is calling for big changes to the filibuster. We should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. It used to be you had to stand there and talk and talk and talk and talk until you collapsed. I strongly support moving in that direction. And while Obama almost never said a bad word about George W. Bush, Biden pinned the border crisis at his own predecessor's feet. They're coming because of the circumstances in country, in country. The way to deal with this problem, and I started to deal with it back when I was a United States senator, I mean, vice president, for putting together a bipartisan plan of over $700 million to do the root causes of why people are leaving. What did Trump do? He eliminated that funding. He didn't use it. He didn't do it. 
And in addition to that, what he did, he dismantled all the elements that exist to deal with what had been a problem and, and has been continued to be a problem for a long time. He, in fact, shut down the, uh, the number of beds available. He did not fund HHS to get people to get the children out of those, those border patrol facilities where they should not be and not supposed to be more than a few days, a little while. He also made a point to speak to the humanity of those making the journey, making the obvious but often overlooked point that nobody sends their nine-year-old on a perilous thousand-mile journey on a whim, that the journey itself is a sign of extreme desperation. He compared it to his own ancestor who fled Ireland on a coffin ship, not because he desperately wanted to leave his home, but because British imperial policy toward the Irish had made life unbearable. It's not like somebody sitting on a hand-hewn table in Guatemala, I mean, in, uh, in, in somewhere in Mexico or in, in Guadalupe saying, I got a great idea. Let's sell everything we have. Give it to a coyote. Have them take our kids across the border into a desert where they don't speak the language. Won't that be fun? Let's go. That's not how it happens. People don't want to leave. When my great-grandfather got in a coffin ship in the Irish Sea, expectation was, was he, was he going to live long enough on that ship to get to the United States of America? But they left because of what the Brits had been doing. That's not the first time Biden has alluded to Britain and Ireland's fraught history. Here's what he said last November to a British reporter who tried to ask him a question. Mr. Biden, a quick word for the BBC. The BBC, I'm Irish. Now, Biden spent time in his press conference talking about the desperate conditions that were driving people to flee Central America. And he mentioned earthquakes, hurricanes, gang violence, corruption. What he didn't mention was that just as British imperialism made Ireland unlivable, American imperialism in Central America and Mexico has driven people north. Remember that it was British policy that starved the Irish during the potato famine, not a shortage of food. U.S. support for a coup in Honduras while Biden was vice president has played a major role in destabilizing that country. Then there was our support for the 1954 coup in Guatemala on behalf of the United Fruit Company that set the nation on the road to civil war. Nicaragua, of course, was home to an American-funded dirty war, as was El Salvador. On top of that, our trade policies subsidize American corn growers to export to Central America and Mexico and undercut farmers there, producing millions of unemployed young men. The media missed some of this because they were more interested in his Biden-esque mangling of the English language and his drifting off into nowhere. And in the media's defense, there was plenty of that. So the best way to get something done, if you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to, anyway. Okay, um, hang on. Uh, sorry. Oh, Sing Ming, Miss Kim. The other thing the media zeroed in on after the press conference was that the White House press corps had made the odd choice to not ask a single question about COVID. But there were two other omissions I thought were telling, and even more telling considering that nobody complained afterwards about their absence. I'm talking about the case of Julian Assange and the case of Reality Winner. In another break from the Obama administration, Biden's Justice Department is pursuing extradition of Assange from London for the crime of publishing evidence of U.S. war crimes in Iraq. The Obama administration had declined to pursue Assange, reasoning that if it did so, they'd also have to go after every newspaper that's ever published a leaked document. That particular dilemma has become known as the New York Times problem. Assange's case could set a historic precedent 
and represents a major rollback of press freedoms, but it has been absent from the national conversation. We'll talk with whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, who famously leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times in 1971 about the case of Assange. Later in the show, we'll also talk with Billy Winner Davis, mother of reality winner, who is serving the longest federal prison sentence of any whistleblower for alerting the public that what President Trump was saying about Russian interference in the U.S. election differed from what the NSA had concluded. Her case is the subject of a recently released documentary, United States First Reality Winner, which just premiered at South by Southwest. But first, Daniel Ellsberg, welcome to Deconstructed. Hi, I'm glad to be here, Ryan. I'm a constant listener to your program. That's tremendous to hear. That 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 fills me with pride. It's because it, it's it's great. It's great to have you here. Uh, it's a it's a real privilege. We're going to talk about a couple of different things, but I want to start with the the case of uh, Julian Assange. When the Biden administration took office, what was your expectation about how they would approach this case? Well, of course, there was hope that they would revert to the decision of the Obama Department of Justice not to prosecute Julian, since no journalist or publisher ever had been prosecuted, nor should they be prosecuted in this country. We don't have an official Secrets Act, and the as they do in Britain. And um, the Espionage Act, the use of the Espionage Act is, I believe, on good judgment of lawyers, unconstitutional as applied to sources and, and whistleblowers in general. Mm-hmm. So, at any rate, the Obama administration, which had prosecuted more than any other, in fact, all other administrations put together, had uh, prosecuted whistleblowers and leakers in general, but they did back off from prosecuting Julian after realizing that the implication would be mm-hmm. that the New York Times and The Intercept and uh, mm-hmm. other places published classified information would be comparably uh, liable. So you could say, okay, uh, Biden was in the Obama administration, obviously, and maybe he will abide by that sound constitutional approach. On the other hand, Biden had said at the time, I think it was in 2010, that he thought Julian Assange was a high-tech terrorist. If he conspired to get these classified documents with a member of the U.S. military, that's fundamentally different than if somebody drops on your lap, here, David, you're a press person, here is uh, classified material. Mitch McConnell says he's a high-tech terrorist. Others say this is akin to the Pentagon Papers. Where do you come down? I would argue that it's closer to being a high-tech terrorist than the, than the Pentagon Papers. So that did not bode well at all. And the decision of his DOJ so far to um, continue to appeal the decision by the UK judge, Judge Baritzer, not to extradite Julian Assange to the US. The uh, Trump administration appealed that, I think actually formally on their very last day in office on the 19th of January. But, uh, and as I say, Biden could have immediately dropped that appeal and could still do so and should still do so, but it didn't. So, uh, <laughs> hopes were initially dashed, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that uh, there's no chance to get them to reverse that. And I hope that will happen. Right. They they had the opportunity to just say, you know what, we we lost this and we're dropping this. We're not moving forward, which would have been making the same decision 
that the Obama administration did, and the one, the one that you referenced, you alluded to what the Department of Justice referred to as their New York Times problem. Like, how do we prosecute Julian Assange, who they really kind of emotionally wanted to prosecute, without also implicating the New York Times? Because as listeners might not realize, it's there's no law against, as you said, there's no law against publishing classified information. We have a First Amendment that's not restricted by whether or not the CIA has determined that something should or should not be published. There are crimes for leaking classified information to the media, but the media itself can't be published. And so what critics of Assange have said and what supporters of the prosecution say is, well, okay, he's, he's sort of a publisher, but really he's a hacker, sort of similar to how Biden had referred to him as a high-tech terrorist. So he's actually a hacker. He's always not just a publisher. And so what's your response to that basis for the prosecution? Well, first, Ryan, I have to take uh, some reservations about a couple of things you just said. Sure. Uh, First of all, it has been the case, of course, that many sources like myself have been tried. In in fact, three cases were brought before Obama and about them were brought at least nine or 10 if you count Petraeus. And uh, so more than three times all the previous. But the question as to whether that had properly been tried as a crime has never been addressed by the Supreme Court. Hmm. And very few journalists uh, really know this, I would have to say. To say, in other words, unequivocally that it is a crime confronts very strong arguments by constitutional lawyers that the Espionage Act does not constitute a constitutionally sound... So it's it's a crime, but it may not be a constitutional crime. Yeah. Well, uh, no, it's... It's it's, on the books, is what I mean. The wording of the act. There's two aspects to it, and one of the... uh, They're really very important on Assange right now. Um, One is, as an abridgment of free speech, and Mm -hmm. thus against the uh, First Amendment, that using the Espionage Act and against any release of classified information amounts to the criminalization of sources, of all sources, regardless of the intent, the motive, the impact, and thus too much of an abridgment uh, can't be allowed of the First Amendment. I think that's very sound. But the Espionage Act, as it's written, has always been applicable to such a broad range of discussion of important matters, that many of which have been wrongly kept secret for a long time, that it should be regarded as unconstitutional. As a matter of fact, in her last days in Congress, Tulsi Gabbard introduced a resolution with very good amendments to the Espionage Act that would require the hearing of a public interest defense, that this was in the public interest. Mm -hmm. And um, on the case of Reality Winner, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, she clearly did uh, reveal information that she thought, with good reason, was in the public interest. But, uh, but that's, that's true of, most, of any of the ones we would call whistleblowers. To, to kind of expand on, on the absurdity of, of how expansive the law is, I remember during the Obama years, after the Snowden revelations, talking with Obama administration officials or, or NSA spokespeople or CIA spokespeople, and they were not internally allowed to host articles on their <laughs> on their yeah, computers I know that, I that, yeah. that 
had revelations from Edward Snowden in the Guardian, in the Post, in the New York Times, in every you know on on television. You know they they were everywhere in the public, but in inside the headquarters they were still considered classified, and so they still couldn't be talked about and couldn't be shared. And that overexpansive application of a law, you can tell there are people who actually do believe that that should be, you know, how the law is applied. And you can you can see like uh, the glimmerings of a of a dystopia where that that has that kind of Kafkaesque absurdity to it that everybody can read these in the newspaper, but it's a crime to read it in the newspaper. And you make a good point that there is no distinction in the Constitution between members of the fourth estate between journalists and and regular citizens the government doesn't credential journalists and and nor, and nor should it so if the same first amendment rights apply to everybody which of course they ought to then how would the government try to create a system of classification that they could enforce would it just be on penalty of termination but they couldn't actually make it a crime because the crime would be unconstitutional Look, I was the first person prosecuted for this. Mm-hmm. I was not the first person to release classified information. Right. I probably was not the first person that week. Right. <laughs> Sometimes I've been called the, the father of whistleblowing. People have called me that. Well, I had to point out, I didn't start whistleblowing. I didn't start leaking. Mm-hmm. I was the first probably to do mass release, mm-hmm. like that, 7,000 pages. And I, I wanted much more of that to happen as a result, but it didn't. I had to wait 39 years for Chelsea Manning mm-hmm. to give leaks to Assange, uh, an even larger amount of information in the digital era, uh, more than I could possibly have Xeroxed at the time. And uh, likewise, three years later, Edward Snowden. But how can the government keep secrets if it doesn't have this act? Well, the point I'm making is it kept secrets very well. Mm-hmm. For uh, you know, hundred almost a hundred years since the act was passed, uh, you know it isn't no nineteen seventeen. So let me not exaggerate. But let's say for uh, our history, I mean, even before the act was passed, they kept secrets very right. well, just as Exxon and uh, the aerospace industries and others keep secrets all too well, right. without the advantage of being able to charge their people with crimes. Now they do so, uh, criminal offenses. As you say, the administrative remedies for airing dirty linen mm-hmm. in public are all too effective. And they, they, uh, the big one, of course, is um, not only firing the person, but basically blackballing mm-hmm. them in the industry. That's very, you know, their, their careers have to go. And perhaps even uh, greater than that industry, we can uh, come back. Whistleblowers have a hard time getting elected. Uh, I'm sorry getting uh, employed. They have a hard time finding employers. That's a very serious problem. But uh, the fear then of losing your job is more than enough Mm -hmm. to keep people from revealing secrets, including secrets that should be known and that they know should be known. And even before that, in the government, losing access to certain kinds of secrets effectively curtails your career and your promotion, your understanding. In my case, they brought 12 people up with orders to incapacitate Daniel Ellsberg totally, totally, physically, on the steps of the Capitol on March 3rd, 1972. So they wanted me to shut up. 
about what I was saying about Nixon's policies. And for that, they found nothing short of incapacitating me, or as the prosecutor believed, killing me. He said, William Merrill, he said, I have no doubt that the intention was to kill you. And that was the meaning of those words. I'm not sure. In fact, I doubt that was the direct intention. I think they wanted to shut me up. And as one person testified, uh, Bernard Barker of the Bay of Pigs, Macho Barker, mm-hmm. he was known as, he said, my orders, he said to a journalist, were to break both his legs. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think that's, this is from the Oval Office mm-hmm. now, basically. I don't think that was the extent of what they wanted. That wouldn't shut me up. I think it had to do with my jaw more, mm-hmm. more importantly. But um, the point is, you are subject to these sorts of things. Now, all of those, all of the things that were done to me in terms of setting the CIA on a burglarizing my former doctor's office, listening to my phone calls without a warrant. These things were formally illegal, clearly unlegal as well as unconstitutional. And uh, they've essentially been legalized now after 9-11. I don't want to say the government has recourse. They just do it. I mean, they don't have legal recourse to these approaches. But, and, I'm not, and I wouldn't say they should obviously not uh, rely on them. But they do have the ability, as they had before me, and after me to ruin and the careers of these people. Unfortunately, that threat has proven to be enough to keep people silent, even when they know terrible wrongs are being committed. A war of aggression is being planned and then carried out, as in Iraq. There, how many thousand people knew that that was coming along, and how many of those thousands of people who had access to that felt? This is a great mistake on many grounds, that this should not happen. None of them reveal documents on that. Now, the other argument you hear from some Democrats is, well, Assange received stolen information from the Russians and interfered in the 2016 presidential campaign. And so, you know, he's he's getting what he has coming to him. Well, first of all, the important thing to see is what the charges, which are the basis for trying to extradite him now, and which he would face unfair trial in the U.S., have nothing to do with what he did in 2016 or 15 or 14. They entirely refer to what I would say are unquestionably right revelations in 2010, Mm -hmm. basically what he got from Chelsea Manning. So these complaints, which have a basis, in my opinion, for definite make it problematic Mm -hmm. in 2016. Not so much as journalism, but a matter of his political judgment. Right. I don't judge him for being quite angry at Hillary Clinton, who he properly regarded as a key person in keeping him in there for uh, for six years and so forth. And I can imagine, without having discussed this with him, that that affected his judgment of what he ought to do in 2016, in a very understandable way, even if it had very bad consequences, even if it did. The question comes back to, uh, you know, journalistic judgment, and um, or practice, I should say, and I think there's no question that he should not be extradited or tried for what he did in 2010. And I would say the same, by the way, about 2016, except that, let's just put it, I, I don't at all blame a lot of people for being very angry at him for that. And as a journalist, I actually 
come down on the other side of that that one particular question. To me, if a journalist obtains information that he or she can verify as true and that it is newsworthy, that he or she should publish it. The source is beside the point of to you know the the real the real question is whether or not it's true can be verified and is newsworthy. Look, absolutely, uh, Ryan. I agree with you on that. And you, if you may have noticed, or maybe you didn't notice, I did not raise the question of the source of the information in 2016, and I don't mm-hmm. think that is uh, relevant, as you say, if it's authentic. I don't disagree with you on that. And moreover, when it comes to releasing it, maybe if I come clean with my, which I haven't chosen to do particularly, on my feelings about Assange in 2016, because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make it in any way more likely that he be extradited or changed. So I haven't really said anything critical. I said I disagreed with him. Since you've raised issues here, which I don't raise, the political judgment that I do make, the way he did it, in terms of timing and forecasting it and releasing it exactly as some of it, you know, right after the mm-hmm. Access Hollywood tape, same day, within hours, uh, to dilute the news impact of the Access Hollywood pussy-groping revelation, indicated me that he was acting in the desire that Hillary Clinton not be elected. Now, he has a right to have that opinion, but what what did that reflect? Well, I said, first of all, humanly, I would not expect Mm -hmm. him to be friendly to Hillary Clinton, nor nor her to him, by the way. He, you know, the revelations embarrassed her Mm -hmm. tremendously. However, in 2015, in the course of his years of effective confinement, he did arrive at the decision which he tweeted that the election of Donald Trump, and this is 2015 mm-hmm. now before the campaign, would be better or might be better than the election of Hillary Clinton. Now, a lot of people made that judgment. In fact, you know, what was it, 60 million or something? But I think it was a mistake. Right. And uh, it put him on the wrong side. Right, right. So there I've I've said it. I've never actually uh, said that in public before because I'm not interested in fanning flames against Julian. But what I am saying is I can understand uh, that. And it's not just a matter of feeling a little angry, a feeling that he contributed in however small an effect, and it may not have been so small, but that he contributed to the election of Donald Trump. And, And not without intention. That's very severe criticism. To have helped somebody do that shows, in my opinion, very bad judgment, and it is not at all confined to Julian Assange. No, it's it's not. I don't want to go into that, and it it definitely applies to other people I know. Right. There's also a push, as you know, in the whistleblower community to get a commutation for reality winner, the NSA contractor. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What's your sense on, on the dynamics of that and whether that is possible? She's serving out nearly a six year sentence, one of the longest. What could be that end up being the longest ever? Well, uh, no, even the full six years would not be as long as Chelsea Manning actually served, right. which was seven and a half. I saw the uh, in the media on the web just the other day a statement that it was the longest sentence. And of course, Chelsea Manning got 30 years, but maybe they're just thinking Maybe the distinction is the court martial versus federal sentence. 
Yeah, right, right. Uh, now, Obama did commute that. He waited till his last months in office, and he should have done it at the beginning. Uh, never gotten a sentence like that, or I would say been found guilty at all uh, of a constitutional law. I would like to see that law challenged. And I don't remember seeing any newspaper that has made that point. Why do I know better than they do on the constitutional issues mm-hmm. for a very simple reason. I was charged with mm-hmm. it. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've become knowledgeable about that one law. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if there's another part of the U.S. code that I could uh, identify that same way, but I have followed that one. And no newspapers have really, that I know of have really addressed the constitutional issues. And in part, that was because they sort of accepted the use of this against their sources mm-hmm. without really fighting that very much, and certainly without paying legal costs, for example, as I believe The Intercept right. did do, uh, probably in the mm-hmm. case of Reality Winner. The New York Times, as far as I know, no one on The New York Times lifted a phone call tell any wealthy friend that my trial was a good thing to donate to, mm-hmm. uh, let alone say it in the newspaper or even mention right. that I had a uh, fund for the trial. Zero, right. hands off. And I think that is the almost universal treatment. I really think that newspapers tend to think of people, especially who give them classified information that their bosses don't want out. The people who have only one shot of saying, I've just learned something that is terrible, illegal, criminal, unconstitutional, or will cost many, many lives. I don't find uh, the press terribly concerned about those people at all. I almost suspect that they regard them the way police regard their special informants, Mm -hmm. that is, snitches, members of the criminal community. Last question. I wanted wanted to ask you about a revelation that came recently from the late Neil Sheehan, who you had provided the Pentagon Papers to. It was revealed after he died that you had told him, don't make copies of, of all of this. And he finagled a way to get in there when you were away and made copies in an eerie parallel to, yeah. to the way that you did. And then when you spoke about it, he said, look, I just did the same thing you did. I was driven by my moral conscience or something like that. What's your recollection of how all that unfolded? Okay. First of all, <laughs> the truth, <laughs> okay, from my point of view, is, um, first of all, this is not the New York Times at its best, and not at its its worst either. Neither that nor the article the next week, which lauded that particular article, you know, said this was a triumph of ours of a revelation. Neither of the people that had called me, in which I could have corrected a number of things very flatly, for instance... The, the claim, which was the most important, was false, which was Daniel Ellsberg never gave these documents to the New York Times. Oof, that looks, wow, wow, you mean I've been telling a false story here for 50 years? You know, that's a rather uh, important claim. Denied in the same article when it does say I gave it full control and copy out to him, he says, in May. Uh, well before the papers came out in June. So I did give it to them. Second, the uh, relation, the revelation that caught everybody as a big revelation is that he had copied these papers, um, which has been known for about 40 years, uh, 50 years. 
71, 50 years ago. In early 42, and, I, and we knew it before that, 72, I mean, it was brought out in a book on the papers by Sanford Unger about the copying. It's been brought out in every book about the thing. It's absolutely not news at all, except to readers, of course, who understandably don't remember any of it or didn't know when they were born after it. It's all news to them, not news at all. First of all, I never criticized him for doing that at all. The quote is, as though I were charging him, you stole it just the way I stole it. Now, I never regarded myself as having stolen that information, which, as he says, really belongs to the American people, you know, and has been wrongfully kept from them. I never thought of him as stealing the information. I did think of him when I learned about it as having wanted to assure himself that he had that information that he could put out. I took, Daniel Lisford took, he wanted to have that. I thought that was very reasonable when I heard about it. It was not necessary. And he was described, you know, as saying uh, it had to be done. You know, and he said, well, no. All he had to tell me was the truth, that his editors were eager to do this and wanted to do it and did not rule out publishing classified information. When I said I didn't want him to copy it at the first it was in the absence of that assurance of him. And I thought it was pretty likely that the Times would say, we can't do this. And that's what their lawyers did say, except for James Goodale. But their law firm dropped them over. It was treason. It was criminal. And that's pretty much what I expected. I, I did not want 4,000 pages of top secret material sitting around the Times indefinitely in a copy if they weren't going to use it. Time would go on eventually and somebody would call the FBI, as people wanted to do, as it's now been reported you know, later. So uh, all I needed to hear from him, as I said, was, um, are your people interested in doing this? Can they conceive? You know, Are they moving ahead on it? It was already the case when I talked to him. And he could have told me that any time. Why he didn't, I can only speculate. It's been a puzzle to me for for 50 years, why he chose to tell me up till the end, they're not working on it. Only I am working on it. And so I want a copy to do it on weekends and night. And so I said, okay, and take the copy. And uh, before the thing, so why he acted like that, I can, I can conjecture. It certainly wasn't necessary, but it ended very, very well. Couldn't have been better. Uh, the uh, the Times did a great job with it, including Abe Rosenthal, who, for other reasons, I'm told, hated me and didn't like anti-war protesters in general. Um, but he went against that. He printed it. He was for the war. And I don't give him credit for that in his judgment, but I give him a lot of credit as a journalist for printing something that, as he said, is going to make his friends mad mm -hmm. for, for hurting the war. Uh, that that was more than I expected from him, and I, I give him great credit for that. Well, Daniel Ellsberg, thank you so much for joining us on Deconstructed. I'm glad to do it, Ryan. I, and I'll, uh, as I say, I, I regularly listen to this uh, on my treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That was Daniel Ellsberg. When I came to The Intercept in 2017, one of the first articles I worked on was based on a document that had been leaked to The Intercept, relaying the NSA's conclusion that Russian operatives had attempted to breach election systems in the U.S. Now, my role was a minor one, limited basically to researching election security protocols in North Carolina. But when Reality Winner was prosecuted for leaking a confidential document, I ended up learning a lot more about her. And I discovered she's one of the more remarkable people her generation has produced. It's my privilege to be joined now by Billy Winter Davis, reality's mother. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you you just finished watching the the documentary on your daughter. Uh, did did it do her justice? I think it did. I I think that it did. I think that it really showed the injustice that was done to her. It didn't do her justice, but it showed the injustice that was done to her. It showed the government's persecution of her. It showed how she was treated from the beginning. And I really feel also that they did a good job of actually bringing my daughter to light to, Mm -hmm. you know, introduce her to the public because she has been absent in all of this. Mm -hmm. She has been locked away and silenced since June 3rd, 2017. What what was she like as as a child? Reality was always... Uh, a lot of fun as a child. She was always one who, um, you know, joked around. She loved sports. She loved laughing. She was never in any kind of trouble. The only kind of trouble that she ever got into was the eighth grade, uh, right before graduation, when she was getting ready to be valedictorian of her class. She orchestrated a huge food fight at the school. And so (laughs) she was banned from the school for life. So she did not get to walk the stage, but that was that was it for, you know, reality's troublemaking growing up. When, when did she start getting interested in languages? She speaks an, an extraordinary number of languages, and, and I understand she's even picked up uh, some new ones. Was that later in life, or did you see that developing early? That was pretty early on. We live in South Texas, which is heavy Hispanic population. And so when the girls were in school, um, the school that they went to, it was a requisite that at, I think it was pre-K four, they started them in Spanish classes. And she really picked up Spanish, you know, very fast and, and very well, especially, you know, from where we live, it's, it's all around us. And when did she start picking up the other languages? And is it true she she reads Latin now? She actually took Latin in high school and fell in love with it. And and then in high school, she started also sending off for books to try to teach herself Arabic. And so she started self-teaching 
Arabic. Uh, and I want, I want to tell you a story that a friend of hers told me, and uh, I assume you may have heard a version of it before, but I wanted to get your reaction to it and what it, what it says about her. He said that, you know, and for people who don't know, she, you know, she got into competitive, what, what would you call it? Competitive weightlifting, competitive? Yeah, she was, she had just um, started weightlifting and actually had uh, competed for the first time just prior to her arrest. And what, one of the remarkable things about her ability to compete was that she was vegan and she was going up against, of course, many other people who were not. And there was one gym uh, that she used to like to go to that was when she was living in Maryland that was in, in Baltimore. And, and her friend said that uh, every time that she would be asked by somebody on the street in Baltimore for something, she would feel compelled to give them uh, a Luna bar or, or something that she had brought with them. Usually it was one of her Luna bars. And she said that eventually it was just becoming so expensive uh, to, to go to that gym that she eventually had to stop going to it because there was a, just a part of her personality that, you know, couldn't see suffering that she could do something about and, and look the other way. Does that, does that sound like her? Yes, it does. I I don't think I've heard that one, but I know that when she lived in Maryland, there was a homeless man that lived somewhere on the streets near where she lived. And if she were to stop somewhere and get some food for herself, she always got a second plate for the gentleman. She always made sure that he had food to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's who she is. That That's always been who she is. And do you feel like what she ended up getting convicted of was it was in line with that that it was just her moral compass kind of directing her there i i do i feel like i feel like she wasn't the type of person that could have looked away and done nothing you know we know um throughout this ordeal that thousands of people in the nsa looked at that document you know what what she had mm -hmm. said was that that was the most mm -hmm. read document of the time in within the intelligence community, yet reality had to be the one that said, I can't look away from this and I can't do nothing. That's not who she was. Right. Unless Biden orchestrates a compassionate release or commutes her sentence or pardons her, she's scheduled to be released in, in November. Do you, do you know what her plans are uh, for when she when she gets out of prison? Well, she wants to come home and be with Gary and myself and our animals. She does want to work for criminal justice reform and prison reform. She has talked a lot about making change. All of the experiences that she has had in the system has opened her eyes that our system needs to be changed and there needs to be justice, not for her, but for everybody. Human beings shouldn't be treated like this. Mm -hmm. What's been her response to that? And has there been any recourse through the system? I found out uh, the first week of January, actually, the first several days of January is when she called me one day and she was hysterical. And it's then that she shared with me that last March, March of 2020, she had filed what's called a PREA report. And PREA stands mm -hmm. for Prison Rape Elimination Act. And this makes sure that all inmates have the ability to report when something has happened to them and when they have been sexually assaulted or inappropriately touched. And she reported that she was inappropriately 
inappropriately touched by a prison guard that worked her unit. And she told me that there were at least three other persons in the unit that also reported this same prison guard, but nothing was being done. So she reported this in March of 2020 and nothing was done. And here we are, uh, January of 2021. Well, this guard came into that unit the night before she called me and told everyone in the unit that Reality Winner had made a report on her. And this guard stated in front of everyone that if you lie on me, I come for blood, which my daughter felt she took it as what Mm -hmm. it was. It was a threat to her Mm -hmm. safety. And so, you know, my daughter was hysterical, you know, saying that, you know, something was going to happen to her, um, you know, which is very real, especially in prison, you know, and, and so we've been, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to do what we can do within the system to make sure that number one, her Priya allegation gets investigated thoroughly, and then that this threat allegation gets investigated, and that my daughter is protected in the process. And what I don't want is I don't want her to be put in protective custody because protective custody is basically the shoe. It's solitary mm-hmm. confinement, and she she shouldn't have to go through that to be protected. And so what is her current situation? She's in FMC Carswell now. Do you, do you feel some confidence that that she has some level of safety from retaliation at this point? No, I do not. That prison guard continued to work in her unit even after mm-hmm. I sent up concerns. Then that guard was walked out of the unit. She was then brought back to the facility. And about two weeks ago, my daughter again called me frantic, stating that she had heard that that guard was going to be reassigned to her unit. So once again, myself and my daughter's Dallas attorney, we got on the line, we started making calls, we started making inquiries um, to get that stopped. Um, My daughter you know, will not be safe unless they they do something about the system within. How are they How are they handling her her vegan diet? That depends on the day. Prior to COVID, she's you know indicated that things were were pretty good. They would go down to the actual cafeteria. There would be a line. There were always plenty of vegetarian options for her. So she, you know, prior to COVID, she was okay. Prior to COVID, she was teaching a nutrition and fitness class. She was also taking college courses. She was doing her artwork. Things were good. When COVID hit and started spreading through prisons like wildfire last March, they shut down all of the prisons. They discontinued all visitation. They discontinued all meal services all programs, recreation. Her attorneys are not even allowed to go and visit with her. And so they pretty much have them all locked down. And since the lockdown last March 2020, she hasn't been fed a no-flesh option at every meal. This hasn't been available to her. When her entire unit tested positive for COVID, they were isolated within their unit, not allowed to leave their rooms, and they were being fed these Johnny bags, which basically is the meal in a paper bag. And a lot of times she was given a bologna sandwich, which she can't touch. So she went without A lot of people don't understand that, that what's happened to our prison system during COVID, it's just inhumane. Right. And and on top of that, it didn't work. Like you said, her entire unit, uh, including her, contracted coronavirus. What was her experience with 
with COVID like? Yeah, so Reality filed for compassionate release back in March and April, and she was denied, or rather I should say that the prison system lost her petition and denied that she did it. Later they found it. So her team filed with the district court for compassionate release. That judge denied it. They appealed. It went to the circuit court, and in November it was denied again. But in the meantime, in July, my daughter caught COVID. And the first thing with her experience is that a prison guard came in and congratulated her on her positive test result. Congratulated her? She she was congratulated. Mm -hmm. Yes. Congratulations. You are positive with COVID. And, you know, my daughter, you know, tells me how frightening it was because some of the women were really very sick. And what they were doing was they were taking out the most sick, those who had the worst of the symptoms were being Mm -hmm. taken out either to hospitals or they had resurrected these tents outside on the yard that they could see by looking out out of the windows. You know, imagine you're, you're shut in a prison like this and you're seeing and your, your cellmate gets carried away in the middle of the night and you don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just, it was terrifying to them. And of course, you know, she suffered from body aches and fever and pain and, and all of that. And the only thing that they gave them was Tylenol. And they, the staff even tested them. They thought that this was so funny. Um, you know, in those Johnny sacks that they would give them their bologna sandwiches, they would also include a raw onion to test whether the women could actually smell or not. Hmm. I mean, this is horrific. This is, this is treatment that should not be happening in America. You know, they, and they say, you know, you need a lot of liquids. You need to take really good care of yourself. Beyond a, a Tylenol, uh, was there was there any compassion whatsoever shown by any of the guards, or was it just like it was pre-COVID, except even worse? It was even worse because the staff were angry that they had to be there. Mm-hmm. The staff themselves were afraid. They were afraid of catching COVID. They sure. they didn't f- feel protected in that environment. And there were staff who were catching COVID, and so they couldn't be there. So staff had to work longer shifts. They had to work overtime. And they were angry, and they took it out on the inmates. They let them know that this was their fault. You know, how is it their fault? My daughter never went anywhere so she could contract COVID. It had to have been brought in by the guards, but yet the guards were treating them as if this was all their fault. Um, The inmates were left to take care of one one another. My daughter talked about, you know, helping others get up and helping them to the restroom because they couldn't walk. Has she fully recovered? Yes, she has. And have you gotten any signals from the Biden administration that they're taking your daughter's case seriously when it comes to a commutation or a compassionate release? Or do you think that this is not remotely even on their radar? I do not have a clue. I wish I knew. I wish I knew something one way or another because we continue to request and write and make noise and we don't know if we're being heard. When did you speak with her most recently? We spoke this morning. She called me this morning and we had to cut the the call short because the guard had come to get her for her so-called class that nobody showed up uh, to. And then she called me back a little bit later, knowing that I was going to be home today. Um, So we talked a little bit. And you said you had watched the documentary 
a little earlier with with family. D- did you tell her anything about it? What's what's her take on being being the subject of a South by Southwest documentary? She is oh, she's uncomfortable with it, and she's a little bitter. Um, you know, her take is that all of these things are happening about her without her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to her, it's like, great. She's glad that people are um, enjoying her life because she's not. You know, it, that's that's hard to hear, but it's mm-hmm. really, it. that's her reality. Do you think if she had it to do over again, she would she would do the same thing? I don't think that she could stop herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like giving away her Luna bars, mm-hmm. I don't think she could stop herself. It's it's who she is. And do, do you think, given the power of the NSA and the FBI's surveillance state, that there was a chance that she could have done it and, uh, and remained anonymous if the Intercept hadn't made any mistakes at all? Uh, I asked myself that. I, I don't know, because I really don't know just how many people across the intelligence communities access that document. I don't know how many of them outside of the Georgia area may have printed it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, they would have come down to the conclusion and put the spotlight on her. I don't know. I don't know that answer. Right. Um, I know that she didn't take any precautions as, um, you know, she said in her, mm-hmm. in, her interrogation, mm-hmm. she quit thinking about herself. She didn't even give it a second thought. It was just something that she felt she had to do. As you've been speaking to her recently, does she have any hope that Biden is going to do the right thing here? Or is she thinking towards November of the date that she's scheduled to be released? I think that she's given up hope. I think that she's afraid to hope because everything mm-hmm. in her case has gone against her. And it's easier not to have any hope at all because then you don't lose anything. Well, Billy Winter Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Billy Winter Davis, and that's our show. Deconstruct is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.